This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Ford Foundation, an independent, nonprofit grant making organization working with courageous people on the front lines of social change worldwide. Visit FordFoundation.org to learn more. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us for a discussion today about how disability can drive innovation in design. I'm delighted to welcome my first guest, architect Jeffrey Mansfield. Jeffrey, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, Thrilled to be here. And I'd also like to briefly welcome Andy, who'll be providing ASL translation for us during this event. And before we get started, I'm going to give a brief visual description of myself. I'm an Anglo-American woman. I have shoulder-length brown hair and brown eyes. I'm wearing a black jacket, and I'm sitting in front of a white bookcase. And Jeffrey, maybe over to you now, you could give a description of yourself. Yeah, sure. I'm a white man, middle-aged. I have dark brown hair, a black coat and clear glasses, and I'm sitting in front of a white wall with a window to my left. It is evening time where I'm at. Currently, I'm using American Sign Language and uh, as my primary language and has been since birth. Uh, I'm deaf myself. Thank you so much. So my first question, Jeffrey, is um, going back to your background. You went to a school in Massachusetts, I gather, a deaf school in Massachusetts, and that sort of Uh, gave you a foundational understanding about the relationship between architecture and power. Could you take us back to how your interest in architecture developed from that period? Yes, of course. Um, As you mentioned, I grew up at a school for the deaf here in Massachusetts. It's a very unique deaf school. It was the first deaf school that implemented a complete bilingual, bicultural curriculum which prioritize American Sign Language and signing in the classroom and through learning uh, English as a second language. So I actually have uh, complete access to language-rich environments very early on in my life. Access to instruction from a very young age all the way through to high school. The environment was very unique. And uh, it really was this visual brilliance uh, in with my peers. At the same time, I also saw the mismatch between what we were asking our cla- you know, of our classes and our classrooms and how this mismatched with this very rich abundance in sign language. It didn't match. Something instinctively uh, was off about the instruction, the instructional systems very early on, on how we think about deaf individuals, our role in society, and it's really quite limiting. And there was a moment where I had an opportunity to explore my interests, uh, my learning from my colleagues very early on. It allowed me a more broad, uh, consistency for exploration and learning. This really made me recognize how deaf schools 
not just a school that I attended in Massachusetts, but throughout, um, where I went to different uh, athletic tournaments, sports tournaments, soccer tournaments, and the like, I started to notice similar patterns in their architecture of their building or the remote location of the school for the deaf from the city itself. Very commonplace throughout the, the country. And started to inform me that something larger was at play in the design of our deaf schools and in how the world was designed and how this was not designed for deaf and hard of hearing people. This is fascinating because you're, you're talking about a form of, of separation and segregation uh, in architectural style. But tell me how your work as an architect has moved to overcome some of that and how it's related to other, the architecture that could be designed for other forms of disability. Yeah, um, as you mentioned, deaf schools and other types of disability uh, share very similar architectural lineages, oftentimes are designed by the same individuals and architects, the same agencies. So oftentimes you will see, oh, here's a good for instance, schools for the deaf and a state hospital and then a state prison in the same city or designed by the same architect or designed in the same style. You start to see this overlapping layers of how our society defines disability and how our society sees the investment and commitment of the state to serve disabled people early on as a symbol of civic value. So these institutions were constructed and built to promote a sense of civic pride, societal virtues, and there's an in intended to inspire general confidence. But what's really interesting is these buildings, these ornate facilities, they are beautiful, but these buildings were not necessarily designed to the sensory experience of deaf and hard of hearing users. We depend on visual networks, sight lines, and being able to see each other to communicate in a classroom and outside of the classroom. Oftentimes you would see deaf people who sign that gather in a circle or semicircular shape. They can all see each other when talking. However, at the same time, a classroom was not designed to accommodate that style and that you know, increasing that space to meet a circular format, to help to accommodate uh, matching that sign language needs. Classrooms were quite small in size. They didn't fit. The lighting wasn't ideal. The glare was harsh and backlighting was strong, making a very uh, visually exhausting environment to, to look and watch all day long as you're watching communication. It's exhausting. So these sort of things uh, in terms of design and design flaws, did not match the sensory experience of deaf and hard of hearing users that we're seeing in space. What's really interesting is I had an opportunity to really explore and research and visit over 60 schools for the deaf throughout North America. And I started to notice a very large radical binary 
between schools that were designed by the state for deaf people in comparison. There were schools that were either designed by deaf architects or from a deaf person's perspective. Enormous difference. The state design was very rigid, uh, controlled and you know domineering structures, large, ornate. In comparison, school design from or by the deaf were more organic, comfortable, ideal in terms of daylight, diffusion, accommodating for how deaf people gather in space. This sort of inclusion that you talk about so fascinatingly uh, in terms of deaf architects, are you seeing that with other disabilities too, of bringing in the needs and requirements um, into the process of designing a building from the word go? Yes, definitely. In the last 20-ish hmm, years, we've seen a much larger movement of inclusion, including a variety of people into design, into the design build process, making sure we are bringing in different points of view to this process. Oftentimes, there are challenges. Typically, you'll see a project handed over, and here in this project, you'll see uh, budgets, you know, line items, et cetera. And there's this very limited scope for actually in-depth engagement into the actual process. What you'll see here is you'll see a brief that already has determinations made prior to bringing in the, uh, the person with lived experience into the process. So the project is already from the go, already has problems that are gonna come into play by the fact that it's not fully uh, thinking through the idea of the mission. What is the experiential design mission of the facility to meet the user's needs? What does the user want? There's a mismatch that occurs. So we're still seeing that come into play today. However, we're also seeing an increase in amplification in terms of codes, guidelines, for example, deaf space design guidelines that Gallaudet University developed in 2008 um, helped to set a new standard for what we would expect out of our buildings and how they would accommodate deaf, deafblind, blind, low vision, uh, and other disabilities needs and meeting those needs in the build environment in a way that not just check boxes, but really promotes a new type of experience that can inspire, delight, and promote a sense of belonging. Jeffrey, I have had a number of questions from the audience, and one in particular comes from Joan, who wants to ask about public buildings. And I think this is a very important question. Joan asks, in what ways are hotels, convention centers, and airlines innovating to support access for people with disabilities? Sure, it's a good question. It's interesting. Um, prior, we've seen a lot of you know, airports, airlines, paging systems, for example, at airports, not being accessible to deaf and hard of hearing individuals. Now with mass mandates and with COVID, it's even more difficult for deaf and hard of hearing people to communicate to understand what's happening in the environment. This is where visual messaging systems you know, clear 
wayfinding and signage is just a tremendous piece in creating orientation and context. Being able to navigate a space, knowing where to go, and being able to capture incidental information through uh, captioning on a television or through um, screens that would have updates on which group is being boarded uh, at an airport, for example. This sort of information is significant to the deaf experience. The ADA is powerful. It has a huge impact on hotels, mandating that every hotel has an ADA accessible um, you know, visual alerts, lighting systems, fire alarm systems, um, uh, text telephones and TTYs. That's an older technology, captions on the TV and the like. But this really had a huge support for those who are deaf and hard of hearing in their experience. So uh, you really take me to my next question, which was exactly about the ADA. Obviously, your work goes beyond ADA compliance. Take us that step further. What extra bits, what extra features have you learned to, to add that really make a difference for the deaf experience in the buildings you're looking at and designing? Yes. I was, a born, I was born a child of the ADA. And so the ADA had a huge impact on my life. At the same time, I believe that my generation currently is starting to demand more from the ADA. The ADA is interesting in that it created well, an approach that was based on what is the minimum we can do. I want to kind of reframe this and create a new framework on what is the maximum that we can create that will allow people to thrive and maximize every person's potential. This is really where I want to look at is how architecture and design can reframe from a scarcity mindset to more a mindset of abundance. With that in mind, a lot of my work dives into how we create space for deaf, for the deaf experience. And expanding upon that, there's the sensory experience of deaf and hard of hearing people, of course, but there's a culture experience as well of those who are deaf and hard of hearing. How do we create space that connects to cultural remembrance of those who are deaf in the deaf community? So for example, how we then capitalize on design as a tool to uplift the fact that our community is not monolith is not a monolith but is very intersectional in its individuals in its community experience in its overlapping layers our community is really found it's this is a foundational piece and it's part of this larger narrative and shift that we're seeing around disability rights and framing this to disability justice on what we are pursuing at this time. It's, you know, the idea of a school being built, for example, is this beautiful state-run civic architecture that's providing access to, to deaf and hard of hearing students, you know, to access public education. Is it necessarily mean 
that disability that there's disability justice if the school isn't designed with a sensory experience of people and users in mind or the cultural narratives of those individuals in mind so that's really where we're starting to see this reframe and the shift so you know we see this you know as a for instance you know deaf schools that were designed with a you know, a classroom that was set with, you know, many classrooms side by side. However, if, for example, um, the lighting wasn't right in a particular room, and it really isn't, um, you know, disability justice at that point. We oftentimes will see with de the deaf community on how school design and how design of our public spaces intersect and overlap with other institutions like hospitals you know, with the idea of with prisons and the idea is that how the design of our institutions and campuses promotes a system of oppression as it has been. At the same time, architectural design can also promote a system of inspiration and joy. And then this is how we want to enroot and root this into our design language. It's one of the most powerful abilities of architecture and design. Jeffrey, we're running out of time, which I regret enormously, but I have a last question and it's another audience question, which we'll have to ask a little briefly. Our previous audience question was about uh, functional buildings, airports, convention centers, places we have to move through. And we have a question now from Helen who writes, if you could change one thing about museum art and performance spaces, what would it be? I think that ties into what you were just talking about, aspiration, and I'd love to hear quickly your views on that. Sure. Simple answer here. There is not a lot of space that are dedicated to the to deaf culture and memory and remembrance or deaf art specifically. This making space is, you know, the specific dedicated space to deaf artists and the deaf experience is can be so powerful. It is about making access to culture, to community, and it's profound. It's very impactful. It probably is more impactful than any sort of edit or modification to a building in terms of lighting shifts or uh, um, actually providing, you know, you know, sign language tours and the like. It's more impactful to make more spaces dedicated to the preservation and fostering of deaf culture and memory and disability culture and memory and remembrance. It's significant and it'll be a significant impact. And I, you know, I welcome in the deaf and disabled communities to participate in being more in our society, more into the civic landscape itself. Thank you for that. Welcome to the civic landscape. We all take your, your message to heart. Jeffrey, I wish we had much more time to talk. We don't. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. To continue this discussion about how design can be more inclusive for people with disabilities, I'm joined today by Sinead Burke and Wesley Hamilton. A very warm welcome to you both, Sinead and Wesley. Hello. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having us this afternoon and this evening. We're delighted to have you. So I'm going to start with giving a brief visual description of myself and then after me, maybe Sinead, you can go and then Wesley. I am an Anglo-American woman. I'm sitting in front of a white bookcase. I have 
brown hair and brown eyes, and I'm wearing a black jacket. Sinead, over to you. I am a white cisgendered woman who uses the pronouns she and her. I am physically and visibly disabled. I have dwarfism. I have brown shoulder length hair that's a little bit longer thanks to the pandemic and brown eyes. And I am wearing a custom Gucci knitted dress that has sort of chevrons in a blue, black and gray. And I am in a hotel room in London. So there was a bed behind me and probably sirens and sounds throughout the course <laughs> of this conversation. I love it. Um, my name is Wesley Hamilton. I am a black male. Um, I currently have a medium length beard with um, locked hair, brown eyes. Uh, I have a black hoodie on with I am okay with being with being different <laughs> as, uh, on my hoodie and my background is um, just some a bookcase and some other um, amazing scenery that makes me look good. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> Wesley, let me start with a question for you. Um, you, for our audience, um, you were hit by bullets or bullets um, and were left paralyzed for the, from the waist down. Before this happened, you were not a particularly fit individual. You were not very athletic. Tell us how that changed when you became disabled. Yes, um, I've dealt with being overweight my whole life. I just didn't really understand the severity of um, my health until I became paralyzed from the waist down. Um, and really just being overweight in a wheelchair and the lack of access when it comes to, you know, facilities really just put me in uh, a deeper hole and a, a battle trying to get out of because I had to face um, the health complications that you deal with, you know, being being with a uh, limited mobility um so yeah it was just a, a i would say that it was a huge struggle and it was an eye-opener for me to see how important physical activity was for any and everybody but how limited i was to it because of my disability so wesley just to follow up on that briefly you have so powerfully taken your own disability and used it to help others Talk to us a little bit, if you can, about adaptive athletics and what you have done through your philanthropy to bring this message you've just given us about the importance of fitness to other people. Yes, yes. Um, I started an organization called Disabled But Not Really, and the goal was to help people with disabilities just push past their physical limits um, and do it in a way that gives them courage and confidence. What I realized was that Physical activity is important for everyone. Someone with a disability may deal with a lot of health complications that physical activity and a healthy lifestyle can really give them um, not only strength physically, but mental strength as well. Um, it's power in being healthy and living and feeling good, especially when you have mobility issues that could cause you to, you know, deal with circumstances in society um, and my work that I've done is really seeing that the value that an individual gets from just pushing themselves is something that we can all provide but it just lacks that access um, we're focused on bridging the gap through inclusive facilities um, gyms and anything that 
kind of speaks to physical activity is really not equipped for people with disability. So my work is just really going into these spaces and showing, you know, others the importance and the value that it has done for me and then opening up that door and that awareness so that we can start to op to create more spaces that speak universal and not just I guess I would say limited. So, yeah. Sinead, you mentioned a Gucci dress right at the beginning. Um, but the fashion industry is notoriously exclusive. We think of sort of willowy, impossibly thin, uh, tall white women, uh, although that is changing on the on the runways. But tell us a little bit about what you have done since you've been consulting with the fashion industry and what changes you're seeing in the offing? That's such an important question. And I think for me, so much of the reason and the purpose behind embedding myself within the fashion industry was because it is an industry that creates culture. But as you also discussed, it too is an industry that has proliferated so many of the challenges that exist within society because it cultivates that culture, whether that is fat phobia, ableism, racism, xenophobia, we have all of these conversations that which fashion is a tool by which we can bridge and create solutions. But historically, it has been a vehicle by which we have excluded so many. For me as a physically and visibly disabled person, my background's in education and my solution to creating change within the fashion system was always about starting at the point of education. For me, I have deliberately positioned myself, my work and my consulting company Tilting the Lens at the most upper echelons of the fashion system. Now that positioning can be challenged because even if you make the system itself accessible, even if product becomes available for disabled people, it is unaffordable for so many. But the way in which fashion as a system creates and builds influence is from the top down. So by being on the global equity board at a company like Gucci, which has a public valuation of over $10 billion, by Gucci partnering with James Lebrecht, a physically disabled director at the Oscars by dressing him in a custom suit that was adaptive and accessible for his needs at a moment like the Oscars that has value. In terms of the work that we're doing broadly in the fashion industry, my understanding and advocacy, even within the industry itself, has changed. I think if you had spoken to me in 2017 when my advocacy first began, I fundamentally believed that the solution for disabled people lied with product that if we had adaptive and accessible product readily available in stores and online, that that would be the primary solution that disabled people need. And it is one, but it focuses on the business case of disability, which often we hear is valued at $1.7 trillion per annum. But by focusing on disabled people as customers, it constantly allows a further exclusion of disabled people because it doesn't encourage us to think of disabled people as co-creators, as designers, as creatives and as our colleagues. So simultaneously, the work that I'm doing within the fashion system is to build an understanding and to build pilot programs rooted in employment to try to dissolve that figure that, you know, in many developing countries, the unemployment rate of disabled people is between 50 and 75%. But by focusing on employment, it extends a broader question because most of the jobs that are available within the fashion system are in retail. So what does the future of retail look like? And post pandemic, asking questions of that nature have never been more important. What Jeffrey was speaking to about designing with disability in mind and designing with disabled people has never been more important. 
some of the projects that I'm involved in is about consulting deaf people, not just as those with lived experience, but as experts in design asking what is the flooring requirement that is most suitable and most accessible, not just for deaf and disabled people, but for all people. So maybe that's flooring. Maybe that's flooring that's wooden because it allows for us to hold vibrations and to consider what social distancing looks like. But if we were to design the most accessible retailer in the world, what would that look like? Also, some of the work that we've been doing is partnering with IRA, a US-based assistive technology company, which gives agency and independence to those who are blind and low vision, but also has value for those who do not speak English as a first language, for those with anxiety or autism, and you know, have sensory challenges within those spaces. For me, the work that I'm doing within the fashion system is rooted in education, advocacy, and design that takes a holistic approach that requires full company obligation and opportunity in thinking about disability as not something that just needs to meet the Americans with Disability Act as a minimum requirement, but sets a new standard that brings about a practice and a mindset of accessibility that cultivates dignity, agency, ease, pride, and most importantly, within a fashion system, beauty, and challenging what that beauty norm can be to allow everyone to feel safe and to allow everyone to participate in a fashion system, because after all, we all wear clothes. That's such a, an important, important message. Before I get back to Wesley, um, Sinead, one more question. Which brands, and, and when we get back to the sort of top-down model you talked about at the beginning, which brands have been most receptive uh, to this message of inclusivity? I'm fortunate to partner with several different brands from a global landscape, but I think what we have begun to see is a number of brands, whether that's Tommy Hilfiger and his adaptive collection, which was celebrated here in London at the British Fashion Awards last night, whether that's an individual focus looking at what brands like Gucci and Ralph Lauren are doing. But I think what we are seeing more and more is a ask from the disabled community to not just then be perceived as customers, but to also not just be perceived as customers of an adaptive line. Some of the work that I'm trying to do is also thinking about pipeline. So whilst we can plan and build opportunities for business developments in the now, where are we cultivating disabled design talent for the future? What obligations or expectations are we placing on educational institutions? Once again, as Jeffrey was talking to earlier, the best design colleges in the world, how are they creating opportunities for disabled designers to be present? Whether those disabilities are visible and invisible, what are the opportunities for nonprofit organizations, for example, like the Ford Foundation, to be able to collaborate and to be able to provide equitable and accessible opportunities that are rooted in justice in those spaces? I think the brands that are doing well are trying. I have real questions about what does systemic sustainable change in this industry look like? Because again, if we are designing fashion capsule collections that in some ways are othering by design because we are saying that these are just for disabled people, what is the opportunity for those to grow, to expand? And is there a way in which that they can be done with disabled people for the long term? I think as what was discussed earlier, you know, when we think about designing with disabled people, we need to think about this from a universal approach. So to give you a very good example, you know, when we are thinking about designing an adaptive wear, often we think about something that's medicalized, something that's very specific for a disabled person, usually a physically disabled person. But my definition of accessibility is far broader and again is rooted in design innovation. So for anybody who identifies as a woman or chooses to wear a dress, we will all have had an experience where once in our lives we have probably had to sleep in that dress. And that's because a dress was designed by a man in an era where those identifying as female or those who chose to wear dresses 
had husbands, partners or domestic help in order to be able to get out of it because a dress is largely designed with a long zip at the back that has a very small fixture that requires quite a lot of grip. All people who wear dresses would benefit from an adaptive dress, meaning let's remove the zip from the back. Let's either put it in the front. Let's not have zips at all. What are the 3D printing methodologies that are now available to us? What technology can be provided to actually make clothes functional for everyone? Because much of the designs that we still wear were created in an era that we no longer socially exist within. So let's encourage disability innovation as a way in which to rethink design for value for all. And I think there has never been more important a time than to do it now. If we look at the pandemic, if we look at the impact on the disabled community. Here in the UK, six out of every 10 deaths were disabled people. If we look at the CDC now saying that those with long COVID will now be part of the disabled community. The disabled community has never been bigger, more expansive, more intersectional. So let's leverage that expertise, that creativity and design not just a fashion system, but a global system that is equitable, just and creative and accessible for all. Thank you. Wesley, this brings me exactly to a question for you about how the pandemic has affected the way you work with clients. I know in the past you've got people together to work um, with their disabilities. Talk to us about what impact the pandemic had on that process. Oh, definitely. Um, one of the biggest headlines that I remember was um, how people with disabilities were going to be more at risk. So when things shut down and still allowed, you know, individuals to participate or go specifically like gyms, a lot of them restricted people with disabilities because of weakened immune systems. Um, so for me, with the work that I do and really pushing um, what the healthy lifestyle looks like, um, we just got in innovative. We started to work individually with the people that we serve to make sure that our impact still stayed there um, and also allowed them to know that they mattered. Uh, we have, at least with my organization, had took it to another step of creating a mobile, um, a mobile gym um, that we launched this year with the intent to, you know, make sure that we impact everyone despite what's going on in a pandemic despite you know um maybe certain restrictions and facilities because um as you guys are hearing today um we have the experience we have the knowledge um to really to really help society understand who we are and sometimes when you look at the overarching headlines it's built on perceptions and i guess the work that i'm doing is really to break those perceptions down and create the identities that we want. Um, and with the pandemic, it just allowed us to really see how much um, ableism is still within society to restrict and create barriers for people that are just like everyone else. Um, and yeah, and that's where we are, is really just creating our own spaces so that we can live the lives that we want to live despite anything happening around the world that might put us in a position where that we have to face barriers. So talking about creating your own spaces, you retrofitted your own garage. Talk to me a little bit about the process and how your experience helped you do it the appropriate way for your clients. 
and you. Oh, def definitely. You know, and, and that was another thing with the pandemic and everything that happened in the last two years. Um, we have partnered with, you know, some amazing uh, facilities. And when we realized that we couldn't really be there, um, it, it just did something for me. You know, I was going into facilities and just kind of just dealing, dealing with the barriers and with the pandemic and awareness that even with the barriers and facilities, they still wouldn't accept us. I created a space that spoke to the, the physical disabilities that I was aware of um, outside of my own and created it in a sense that it was built on empowerment for those that, you know, are just part of this community. And it's called the garage, but really the practice behind it was to make sure that I had all the adaptive equipment that is available. And then also um, making sure that the space that I create really allows someone to come in and freely be able to do the things that they need to do to make themselves feel better. Sinead, I have a, a step back question for you. You've talked very specifically about fashion, but of course, fashion affects how we walk around the place, how we navigate our stairs. I've done so in heels that I regret sometimes now myself. Could you talk to us a little bit about how design affects our ability and the, the ability of the disabled world to navigate? Uh, the, the, the communal spaces we all live in. As a disabled woman, as a woman with dwarfism, from the earliest of ages, it was incredibly evident to me that I lived in a world that was not designed for me. Mm. I, like many of the other speakers today, am a child of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I am 31 years old. And in some ways, as an Irish person, you know, through osmosis, got the learnings and the involvement of the ADA as it moved across Europe and as it influenced legislation here. When we think about the designing of places and spaces, even now, we still are not cognizant of the accessibility requirements and the opportunity that accessibility gives to us in thinking about it through a lens of creativity and design-led. We've had wonderful contributions today from thinking through it from an architecture perspective. But if we even just take a very minimum case study and looking at how we think about design and disability. For those who are participating in the session, I'd just like you to imagine what an accessible bathroom looks like in a public space. Can you see it? It's tiled. It is metal. It is clinical and medical. It is absolutely not designed with disabled people in mind. There is no sense of experience or community or pride or culture within a space like that. It is designed to code, to meet the minimum standard. And going back to contributions that were even made by somebody like Andrea Levant recently in this series, it is never considered what it is that we deserve, but what we must expect or at least put up with. Now let's rethink what that could look like. What are the opportunities to redesign an accessible bathroom through a lens of beauty? Why can we not have full length mirrors? Why can we not design a standard by and which, yes, the accommodations that are within the ADA are met, but also that we think through this through a lens of textiles, fabric, not just functionality. And I think that is one of the most enormous barriers because not only is that just about a person experiencing a bathroom, but it is a symbol. 
and an indication of how disabled people are positioned, because it still speaks to an understanding of disability through a medical model and a charitable model, rather than something that is a collaborative and co-designed process rooted in disability rights and disability justice. And how we design spaces is indicative of who gets to belong there. And this is not just something that is unique to the disabled community, but also relevant to members of the trans community, because how we design bathrooms, for example, literally puts a time limit in public spaces of how long people can exist. And then if that's considered only through a medical model, as members of the non-disabled community, why would you want to be there? What level of confidence, tenacity, and emotional courage would it require for you to be in those physical spaces that are designed for your containment rather than for your pride? So I think we need a broad analysis of what is code. How do we move from minimum standards to better practices through a lens of creativity and innovation that should be done with disabled people, not for disabled people, and not just as consultants, but as co-creators and as individuals with equal power at what is hopefully an accessible table. And I think when we think about design, we should, as designers, ask two questions. Is this accessible? Taking the most broad definition of accessibility and then asking who's not in the room and then finding the resources and creating an explicit invitation to invite those, particularly from multiply marginalized communities, to be able to be equal in authority in a space where decisions are made. So whether that's a new office space, whether that's thinking about a policy of now working from home as people move back into the offices, we should be asking those two questions because design is not just physical. It is also sensory and cultural and community-led and can be invisible. But that design process is as important that it is accessible as the physical ones too. But we should not be creating spaces that do not have elevators. We should not be creating spaces where accessibility is limited in any way in this modern era because it is a statement of who gets to belong in our cities, spaces and world. And everyone should get to belong. Sinead and Wesley, thank you so much for leaving us with that very profound question, who's not in the room? Thank you for joining me in this room today. It was a huge pleasure and also very, very enlightening. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.